Well, good morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and get there this morning. And we are continuing our series in Galatians called Captivated, because what captivates your heart, you're going to live for. So some of you are new or you've recently been coming, and you might feel that we are not hitting on some topics as far as you would like to. Well, this is a series, and... For instance, we were going to talk about adoption just for a second this morning, but last week we talked about adoption, and uh, redemption was two weeks ago, and the, the history of the book, those are going to be the first couple sermons. So we've cataloged these things on Spotify and different places for you to be able to go back and, and listen to if, if you're looking for like the full picture of what's going on here. So let's, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on the reading of His Word, and then we're going to we're going to get into it. God, you are glorious. God, thank you for the mystery of saving us, that you would love us, and that you continue to teach us and reveal things to us. Lord, I pray this morning, if there's someone here that's lost, that your spirit would open their eyes to your truth, and they would have no other answer than, yes, Lord, save me, Lord. God, and I pray if there's somebody here this morning that, that they're just desiring to hear a word from you, I pray, pray that they would not leave without your, your spirit speaking to their hearts. Lord, we love you and we pray for a fresh wind. We pray for your spirit to, to fall out on us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, what captivates your heart is going to be the thing that you live for. And my prayer is by looking at the love of God for us in the gospel, that our hearts would be captivated. We'd be captivated by Christ. And we would devote our lives to expanding his kingdom. This morning, we're going to look at, a, at the trade that the Galatian church has made. And when we look at them, it's very easy to be judgmental. But as we look at the trade they made, we need to examine our hearts to make sure we're not making trades as well. The trades we see them making is they desired legalism and they traded their sonship for slavery, right? That's what we, we, we saw in the last week. They, they traded one form of idolatry for another form of idolatry. They traded a teacher who loved them in Paul for liars who just wanted to self-promote. We'll see that in the text this morning. And they, tra they traded a life of joy and a, a life of love for a life of burden. Essentially, what they traded was the gospel of Jesus Christ for a lie. And we need to make sure we are not making these kinds of trades. So every week, this is how we look at the text. We say, what is true? And then what do we do? So here's what is true. Because of Christ, we get to live in the freedom as sons and daughters of God. That's what's true. Because of Christ, we get to be sons and daughters of the King. So, but that's kind of that's up here stuff. What do we do with that? Well, we recognize false gospels because people claim things to be, to be gospel that are not. We recognize false gospels, and we are willing to stand up and confront the lie with truth. That, that's kind of hard, right? Nobody, nobody wants to be confrontational. 
but we are called to stand up and confront the lie with truth because we know what's on the line, the souls of the people we love. So let's, let's read the text. It's a long text this morning, starting in verse 7. This is what we ended with last week. So you are now, so, uh, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I've also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And, through my, and, and, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eye and given it to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. It's good to be made much of for good purposes. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. This is is a hard text, so we're going to try to walk through it slowly. So the first trade we're going to see is in verses 7 through 11. And that's that they traded one form of slavery for another. So the gospel of Jesus Christ makes a glorious trade, right? The gospel tells the story of a God who loved us and a people who rejected and rebelled against him. Our sin against God was great, but God's love for us was greater than our sin. And that's why he sent Jesus to come live among us. That's why he sent his, we know John three sixteen, right? His one and only son. Philippians 2, 6 tells us this about Jesus. Starting in 6. Who, being Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. On the cross is where the great exchange occurred. Jesus traded his perfect, sinless, righteous life for our perfectly sinful, unrighteous lives. That, that's the trade. The theological word for what happened there is imputed righteousness. That means that we get to have the actual righteousness of Christ. But we like look around at ourselves and we're like, Mm, that can't be because 
Like if you live with yourself for 20 seconds, you realize that you're unrighteous, right? If you walk around very closely with me at all, you're going to be like, that guy's unrighteous. So how do we actually have his righteousness? It's because he has, by faith, applied his righteousness to us. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our fallen nastiness. He doesn't see us in our sinfulness. Rather, he sees us clothed in the actual righteousness of Jesus. So, so when he looks at you, don't fear that he sees you as you are because he sees you in Christ. And actually, it's an identity issue. That is who we are now. We are actually totally righteous. And when we fail and when we sin, how does God identify us? By our sin or by the righteousness of his son? It's by the righteousness of his son. That's the trade that occurred on the cross. So this false doctrine being peddled by these legalists in, in, in Galatia, they were saying the exact opposite of that. They were saying, they were teaching what, what we've been calling throughout the book, a Jesus plus doctrine, a, a Jesus plus their laws, a Jesus plus their traditions, a Jesus plus some sort of action to make you really righteous. Well, if that's the case, then that negates the work that Jesus did. Everything about salvation is about Jesus. The only thing we add to our salvation, John, Jonathan Edwards says, is our sin. That's the only thing that we add to our salvation. By faith, we come to him and he does everything else. So let me help you do some math in God's, in God's economy, because I'm not good at math. Y'all want to keep me away from the numbers. I'm painfully dyslexic, but I can do this math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals an eternal life that starts now. Jesus plus nothing is how we get to reign with God forever on high. But Jesus plus something, that's nothing. That's a false righteousness. That's a righteousness that does not lead anywhere. That's, as a matter of fact, that road leads to that wide road that leads to destruction. And what we should fear is lead, seeing people taking that path. The addition to Jesus' complete work is trading the promises of God in the gospel for the false promises of the devil. The devil by nature is deceptive. We understand that, right? The first story we see him show up, what is he doing? He's deceiving. He's, he's promising things with crafty logic. And his logic, it does sound good. I mean, what was the original lie? You can be like God. Did God really say you can be like God? The lie that comes with this, this false Jesus plus gospel same thing. You can be like God. You can earn salvation. Jesus is the only one that can earn salvation for us. We always, by the logic of men, want to have a hand in earning our salvation. Salvation is either totally free or not at all. We have to drill that down in our hearts because that is the good news. Because if salvation, my salvation were reliant on me, I'm hosed. I've got no hope. If salvation were relying on you, you would have no hope. But he says, anyone who comes to him by faith and repents of their sin and believes, what's the promise? 
you will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, we're not getting too far in before we, we're talking about the gospel, right? Salvation is available for you today. If you would just confess your sins and call out to him to save you, the Bible says he will. There's no magic prayer. There's nothing, there's nothing special about it. It's surrendering to God and asking him to save you, and he promises that he'll do that thing. So don't worry about getting the words right. What he wants is a repentant, contrite heart. And because of the work of the Son, this is what's beautiful. This is, this is what last week's text taught us. Verse 7, because of the Son, we've been redeemed by his blood, and we are now blood-bought, born-again sons and daughters of God. Nothing will revoke that promise. And so why did, why did we take that long trip down the gospel? Why did, why did we go there? Because it reveals why Paul is so repulsed at the Galatian church. That he, he is wounded for them because he sees that the trade that they're making, they're willing to trade liberty and freedom for slavery. They traded their sonship for slavery. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. Paul's talking about the Gentile people, these Galatian people. They would have worshipped false gods like Zeus and Hermes. Like, I know it's been a long time since we took like junior high social studies, but people really believed in these things. They, they really worshipped them. And I didn't realize until this week's study in this passage that you'll see in, in your Bible, if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, on Paul's first missionary journey, he goes through Lystra. And Lystra is at the very itty-bitty-bitty-bitty bottom of Galatia. And I didn't realize that the story that we read in Lystra is the story of the Galatian church getting started. And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a minute. So, but during his first missionary um, journey there, he preached, and we see the people in that city of Lystra actually worshiping Zeus and Hermes. So the Galatian church didn't know God, and they were enslaved to these people's figments of their imagination, these, these false gods. These things were the things by nature, not God, as he's talking about in verse, in verse 8. So now let's look at verse 9. So that's what they did before they know God. But verse 9, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back against, uh, again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slavery you want to be in once more? You observe the days and the months and the seasons and the years. Now, he says, you've come to know God, and more importantly, to be known by God, but they're, they're turning back to these elementary principles that, that Paul calls weak and worthless, that they were once enslaved to. So what are these things? Are, have they turned back to the, 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 to the false gods of Galatia? Well, the book gives no indication of that. What is the, what is the, the false religion they're getting sucked in by? Legalism. Uh, they, they never go back to worshiping the Greek gods, so they made a trade. Verse 10 uh, that's what they, it seems like they're talking about with these holy days. Um, because the, the Jewish calendar, they would, 
they would worship in days and months and years, these different, these different things like that. So he's talking about the, the, the Judaizers, the circumcision party. They, they weren't pushing a, a, a Gentile version of false religion. What they were doing instead is, this is the most dangerous type of false religion. A Christian-ish false religion. So far in the book, Paul has addressed their attempt to make people accept their custom of circumcision. Um, he's, he's, he's addressed their desire to make them abide by these, these laws to obtain righteousness. And all this is, is it's the Jewish misunderstanding of how a person is righteous before God. And, and what they're trying to do is, and I keep trying to use the air quotes, they're trying to make someone really be saved. But how do we know somebody comes to faith? How do we know that somebody gets righteous from this book so far? By faith alone in Christ alone. So let's, let's just say that together real quick. How is somebody saved? By faith alone in Christ alone. That's the only place that righteousness is found. So, but it's unfortunate that it seems that many of these people, many of these Galatians, they were taken captive by these, these false teachings and they've, in so doing, they've exchanged their sonship for slavery. But it's just a different kind of false religion. Paul calls it again the, the elementary principles. He talked about that last week. And what we're talking about is the simple revealed truth of God. Whether it's the Romans 1, the law that's written on all men's heart, or the entirety of the Old Testament, Whichever one he's speaking about, I'm not totally sure. I think it's probably the, the law. But either way, without Jesus, without Jesus being revealed, we don't understand how righteousness is truly found. That's, that's who brings all these things about and makes that, makes that clear picture. Without the full picture of Christ, the New Testament or, or the Old Testament is just a shadow, Hebrews tells us. They're the shadows of the things that were to come in Jesus. So we just got a new puppy. We, we, our, our, our dog from a long time passed on. It was, it was heartbreaking, but we got a new puppy, and his name's Willie, and he's, shag, he's, got, he's, uh, he's a sheep-a-doodle. So he's got, like, super shaggy hair. He, he's got feet that are, like, this big as, as a couple-month-old puppy. So recently he's been taking off his mother's milk, and he's been given, you know, puppy food. But eventually Willie's going to be 80 pounds. He's going to be a big 80-pound dog. And what would happen to Willie if I decided to put Willie back on his mother's milk when he's an 80-pound dog? He's going to be malnourished. He's not going to be healthy. He's not going to thrive. He couldn't thrive. And that's the same as coming to Jesus by faith alone and then adding Jesus plus legalism. Christians that get caught up in legalism are spiritually malnourished. They, they, they're spiritually stunted. They're immature individuals. We talked about that last week at length. Paul, in his disgust, he explains that the elementary principles of, of the world, these elementary principles, these, these actions of legalism with two adjectives, right? Look at your text. It says they're weak and worthless. The Greek word for weak carries the idea of impudent, without power. 
The New Testament explains um, one, of, one of the physically lame individuals with this same Greek word. He had no ability to stand up. This is the picture of dead religion. It's impudent. It's unable to make a, purchase, a person righteous. It's unable to heal the brokenhearted. It's, it has inability to bring about salvation. Legalism is incapable of giving. It's incapable of giving joy. It's incapable of giving eternal life. It's incapable of giving peace to a hurting soul. The other uh, adjective that he gives is worthless. And he says, this worthless thing is what you traded Jesus in for. Paul's asking in verse 9, why would you turn back to slavery just with a different name? He says, whose slaves you want to be once more. This, this idea of want, that, that kind of sounds light to us. The Greek word is desire. They desire to be slaves again. They, they desired the slave master. And it's, it just blows Paul's mind that they could see the path of liberty, they can see the path of freedom, but they still choose slavery. I think, I think many people, and this is going to be a shock to us, but look at the political environment around us. I think people really don't want freedom. And I think it scares them because they get to make decisions for themselves. People desire to be told how to act, how to think, what to do, because it takes all the pressure off of you. And these guys with their, with their Jesus plus gospel, they offered it. These guys with their Jesus plus gospel offered what I think people find attractive, hard and fast rules to live by. Hard and fast rules, let me say it like this, to control your salvation so that you can know that you know that you know. Things that we can put our hand in, but as soon as we put our hands in it, whose hands do we take it out of? The hands of our Savior. Control's comfortable, isn't it? Con control, though, is the thief of joy. You want to know what, what joy feels like? It feels like surrender. A life lived by faith is to give up control. I promise you this. Jesus loves you more than you love yourself. Jesus loves you more than you love your children. Jesus, or they, he loves your children more than you love your children. He loves your family more than you love your family. He loves your friends more than you love your friends. And when we get all caught up in this, this legalism and we're trying to apply it to these other people, what are we doing? We're trying to control their salvation. We're trying to make sure we know little Jimmy gets to go to heaven. We're trying to make sure we know that we got to go to heaven. But there's no formula. It's just faith. It's just faith in Jesus. And as long as we are trying to control, 
joy is surrendered. But when we surrender ourselves to Jesus, and when we say, you got it, all I can do is pray, that's when you're going to find joy. When it's, when it's not all on your shoulders. I mean, I'm, I've got a baby. It scares me to death thinking about her eternal security, right? I know it, it probably does you too. But my shoulders are not big enough to carry that burden. I just got to surrender it to Jesus. And if I don't, this life's going to be exhausting. It's going to be scary. And what am I really going to ever accomplish? Nothing. We want to be people who are working for the kingdom. Let's, let's look at verses 12 through 17. We see that they traded a trusted teacher for lying legalism. So let's read our passage again so that we can reorient ourselves to what it's saying. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's gruesome. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut, shut you out that you may make much of them. In verse 12, Paul's telling them to become like he is. Remember in chapter 1, he's talking about like, Chapter 1 is the story of how legalistic Paul was in that he converted and he left all that behind him. And he's like, leave the legalism behind. Walk in love. Walk in Christ. He wants them to be free from the law. Paul traded his traditions for Jesus. Paul understands because he, he, he understands where they're at right now because he lived himself under the burden of the law. Paul's pleading with them to, to trade the law for freedom and to live as children of God who come to God through Jesus Christ. So let's, let's look back at the text. He says, for I've become as you are. That's a head scratcher. I think what Paul's talking about is his missionary strategy. He talks about it at, at, at other places um, because he's not accepting their false theology. He's not accepting their legalism. So if you look at the screen, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. And this tells you Paul's mindset for becoming as someone else is. For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. So he's saying... I. I submitted myself to live as they lived in their culture so that they could hear from me, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, 
not outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he's not saying like, hey, I'm, I'm not breaking the laws of God. I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not stealing. I'm not worshiping false gods. But in the places where there's liberty to eat the things that they eat and to, to go to the places they go, that's what I'm doing. That I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak. Um, that I might win some, and I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul, what he did was he traded his tradition, he traded his cultural norms, he traded his preferences, and he became uncomfortable, that's key, he became uncomfortable to help create a bridge of gospel ministry. Because I don't know if you've ever been to a different place, like a place outside of the, the States. They eat funny stuff. But if you want them to listen to you, you know what you're going to sit there and do? You want to eat it. I went to this one uh, place. They ate dog. But that's what they served. That would have been unclean for Paul. But... He was willing to leave that custom. He was willing to leave his culture that he might win some. For us, moving forward, we're, we might have to lay down some cultural things, some comfort things that we might win some. I love what Paul has. He has a mindset that says, whatever I need to do to expand the kingdom. Can we have that too, church? That Paul's asking them, become as I am, because I've became as you are. He's asking them that they would have that, that whatever-it-takes mindset. That's, God, that's Paul's will for the church, and that's God's will for us. And I want to commend you. We talked about last week in the business meeting, by unanimous vote, we're going to two services, and... It's no one's preference. But I so appreciate your whatever-it-takes mindset for gospel expansion. That's, that's what we could do to expand our work here, so that's what we're doing. That whatever it takes, it's uncomfortable. But it's that whatever it takes, because whose kingdom are we about building? Kingdom of God. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for you. Paul has... Paul models what some call an incarnational evangelism strategy. That's, that's a mouthful, right? So Jesus, how did he incarnate? He came and became, God became man and lived among us. That's what Paul did. Paul, whatever culture he went to, he lived among them and he understood who they were. That's why we're doing this who's your one. It's, it's to model this, this incarnational evangelism. So first, Paul, he would identify people. He would invest a people, invest in a people, and then he would invite them to know Jesus. That's what I'm asking us to do, church, with the who's your one strategy that we're doing right now. So the first I is that we would identify. One reason that I think the church doesn't experience kingdom growth oftentimes, because we stand up here and we say, hey, you got to go reach the whole world for the, where do I start? Start with one. That's what we're at. Identify one person. Identify a family that's either far from God, maybe they're lost, maybe they're not plugged into a local church. Identify them. And then what I'm asking you to do is from now until Easter, 
and I pray that you would continue after Easter, but from now until Easter, whoever this one person is or this one family is that you've identified, you would start investing every day into praying for them because you're going to be amazed what God does when we submit and we pray. But you would pray for them every day from now until Easter that you would invest that time, not just invest your time, but invest your time in them. Send them a text. Hey, I'm praying for you. Send them, send them a, a text that says, hey, can, can, you want to come over to the house for breakfast? Hey, you want to go get some coffee? Invest in the people. That's what Paul did. He understood who they were. He understood their cultures, and he invested in them. And then finally, what did he do? He invited them. He invited them to know Jesus. Hey, if, if, if you don't feel confident sharing your faith with somebody, I've got a couple things for you. In the foyer, underneath the Who's Your One display, there's some, there's some evangelism tracks. If you can draw three circles, you can share the gospel. It walks you through how to do it. And uh, soon we're, we're going to start teaching through that. But until that time, just take one of those tracks. That's, that's a way to share the gospel with them. Talk to them about it. But maybe, maybe that's a big leap for you. Hey, that's fine. Like, don't beat yourself up over it. If that's, if that's a big leap, you know what you can do? Just invite them to church. Because I promise you, if they come to church, I'm going to tell them about Jesus. Somebody in this house is going to tell them about Jesus. So invite them here. Maybe, maybe it's that person that you're talking about. It's like, I, I think they're a believer. But man, I would love to see them be a part of the family of God. You know what? We've got a great family. Not only that, we, we, on Easter, that's the easiest time to get anybody in service. Easter is the most well-attended church service of any church. And I, w- I want to encourage you with this. A Lifeway research poll, a recent Lifeway research poll says 82% of people who do not go to church, so this isn't saying lost or saved, they're just saying that do not attend church regularly, said if they were invited by someone they knew, they would go. 82% of the people that you know, because stats are stats, because we are, would come to church if you invited them. Same research poll says of, 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 that, same, of, of that same study, when they talk to Christians people who say they regularly attend an evangelical church, only 2% of those polled said that they ever invited anybody. How are we going to flip the script? What are, what are we going to do if we would just be a part of this work of inviting people to know Jesus or just inviting them to church? God would do a great work here, would he not? God is sending you to your friends and your, to your family to, to do his kingdom work. I know it's uncomfortable, but will your comfort be the thing that, that keeps God moving from, in, from, from our community? Are you going to allow that to be the, the, the thing? The cross draws us out of comfort. The, the enemy of the kingdom progress is comfort. 
The cross draws us out of comfort to engage a lost and dying world. Jesus was uncomfortable heading towards the cross. He was comfortable hanging out with his friends, right? But when he set his face towards the cross, and remember we see in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying about it, he's in agony. He prays until blood pours out of him, whatever that means. But he submitted himself. God, thy will be done. And he purchased salvation. He brought the kingdom to earth. And to follow him necessarily means we step into discomfort. To follow him means that we get into the game. Because just take an inventory of your heart. Would you, say you're, would you call yourself a, like if this was a, a football game that we were watching, would you say you're a spectator or that you're in the game? Are you a fan? Fans just follow the game. Fans just watch from a distance. How do, you know, how, how do you know if somebody's playing in the game? They're on the field. They're doing the things. Let's look at verse 13. You know it's because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. I'm not sure what bodily ailment that he's talking about, but we see this first recorded interaction in Acts chapter 14. And guys in the back, we're not going to read through that. I, I, I accidentally talked too long about the last part. But so just sum it up. In, in Acts 14, he goes to Lystra. And in Lystra, there's this guy that's lame. That's where we see that word, that Greek word used again. And they come by and, and they heal him, uh, Paul and Barnabas do. And the town thinks that they are the embodied Zeus and Hermes. And they start worshiping them, and they start trying to, to, to sacrifice. It's, it's, it's like this, this riot breaks out in the streets because now there are gods among them. And they, they do everything they can to stop it. And when they finally stop the, the, the chaos, here comes these Jews, these, 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 these Judaizers behind them. And, and what they do is, they, they turn the crowd on him. And Paul is stoned to the point where they think he's dead. And I don't know if you've ever thought about a stoning, but what they would do is they would throw you down into this low area and they would pick up rocks and they would pelt you till you fell down. And then once you fell down, they would continue to pelt you and they would pick up a larger stone and they would drop it on your head. Don't know if he got the last one, but they believed he was dead and this was a practice they had done before. And because he was lame, because he was beat up so bad, he stayed there and he shared the gospel. And it picks up in verse 21. It says, when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. So eventually they, they get out and they come back. They return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And strengthening the souls of the disciples, they, they encourage them in continuing the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must, uh, we must enter the kingdom of God. So that was a tribulation. And when they had appointed elders 
for, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So here's, here's what had taken place. So Paul, in this first missionary journey, he had went to Iconium, Antioch, and Lystra, and surrounding areas. And after the, the gospel had taken off, they would then go back and they would appoint elders. Elders, that's, we translate that as pastor. And you'll see that in every church, after a period of fasting and prayer, they set up multiple elders. And they set up churches. That, that, that's what was going on all throughout this area. And how exciting is it that, I mean, exciting things happen when, when we pray and seek the Lord's face together. These were brand new believers. Like, I don't know if you think these churches were we're since 1874, but these things were a couple months to a couple years old at best. And they have these spiritual disciplines and they're fasting and they're seeking the Lord's face and he's starting churches among them. But let's go back to our original question. What infirmity is he speaking of in verses 12 through 14? I think the, the beating and that they received him even though he looked like a dead guy. And they, they nursed him back to health. They didn't despise him because he looked like a dead man. And he goes on to say that these people would have given anything. They would have gouged out their own eyes. But they've traded him in for these false lying teachers. This guy literally almost gave his life for them. But these other guys, we're going to believe them now. A Jesus plus gospel had stolen their freedom and their sonship and put them back in their chains. And remember, we've, we've talked about Proverbs 26 uh, or 27, 6 a lot. But I, I, I just, I want to, I want this to be one of those verses that we, we, we take to heart. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Paul is a faithful friend as we should be as well. But, Paul has the same, like, Paul has emotions. Paul's got the exact same fear that we do. We fear when we speak truth and love that those people we love won't love us anymore, right? Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? And Paul goes on then to tell them that these false teachers, their motives are not love, but self-promotion. Verse 17, they make much of you but no, for no good purposes, they're, they're just using you. They want to shut you out that you would make much of them. Jesus' motivation was love of the Father and love for us. Paul's motivation, love of God and love for others. And they're trading love in for lies. The, a, a pastor who cared about them and their souls for these people who are self-promoters and want them to make much of these, these false teachers. They want to shut them out. They want to make them second-class citizens in the, in the kingdom of God. In Christ, there are no second-class citizens. It doesn't matter the color of your skin, your ethnicity, your genealogy, your country of origin, the belief system that you grew up in, your past sin, male or female, slave or free. He, he's already told us this. These things don't matter. In Christ, we are one. 
But these people, what they're doing is they're making second-class Christians. And if you look around and you see anything that, that promotes one and demotes groups, those are false gospels. Those are lies. In Christ, we are one body with many members. Jesus has tore down that wall of hostility, and we would be fools to build it back up. We need to determine we will not trade God's gospel in to grovel for the approval of men. Let's, let's look at our, our last part real quick. In, in verses 18 through 20. The last trade we see is the shut door of legalism for the open door of love. That's what Paul's wanting them to do. Verse 18. It's, it is always good to be made much of for good purposes. Not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now so that I could change my tone. For I'm perplexed about you. Paul, he's agonizing over these people. He got pelted with stones and left for dead for these people so that they could hear the gospel. But his, his personal injury and, and anguish has nothing in comparison to the anguish that he's feeling right now because they've given up their sonship for slavery. And not just that. Yeah, these people who came to Christ, they haven't lost their salvation even though they're living a lie. But what about all the people that they're dragging into it? They're not coming to Christ by faith alone, so they're not having salvation at all. He's in, he's in anguish over these people. Imagine you were an orphan. Let's use our imagination. Maybe somebody was. And you lived your whole life on the streets. And then, then this very wealthy man, he sees you, he has compassion on you, and he invites you into his home. He says, everything that's mine is yours. My family's yours. Anything that's in my wallet's yours. Anything in my bank account's yours. Anything in my cabinet's yours. You, you've got stocked fridges. You've got everything you could ever want. And the only thing he wants from you is you just to enjoy the life that he's given you. What he wants from you is you to love him back. That's all he wants. When we get drawn into this Jesus plus something theology, something else, Jesus plus legalism or Jesus plus our form of legalism, it's like this orphan who's been invited into this home, but he keeps running out to the streets begging for food. He keeps living in the gutter. Not only that, he's disturbing the entire family, right? We've all had that family member who, they just get caught up in stuff. When they get caught up in stuff, it disrupts the entire household. It, it, it's, it disrupts the extended family. And when we are living this way, we are disrupting the house of God. We're disrupting the people of God. The, the, the Galatian church gave up their freedom in the gospel to go and grovel for acceptance from these false teachers. And Paul uses the words like this. They, they wish to shut you out. They were willing... 
pawns in these other people's game of self-promotion. Here's the last thing I want to tell you. You are united with Jesus. You are blood-bought, born-again children of God. Let's live like it. I know that's simple application, but let's live like it. You're destined for glory. Live like it. The thing that will distract us from it is the approval of men. If you will, let's bow our heads and, and go to the Father.